I want to remind you that this is now a turning point in this particular book. And so as we get to chapter 7, we shift from what has been a narrative, primarily about Daniel's life and how the Lord has preserved him and used him, uh, how he has maintained his strength in the Lord. He stood in the face of all of this adversity, and he's God's man in Babylon. We now shift to, I believe, the real purpose of establishing that character. In other words, we have the character of Daniel now established as this man who absolutely is hearing from God, absolutely is unashamed of what he's heard, who absolutely will tell anybody what he's heard, and now we shift to why would God put somebody like that into a pagan nation at a time that was pivotal in the world's history? What is it that, that God is going to do with Daniel's testimony? And I believe we now begin to have that portion of the story unfold before us. People are often fascinated by the prophetic books, and for good reason. They're very interesting, but they require a diligent study of not just this particular book, but as I said in our introduction to this book, you really can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the book of Daniel. It becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible. And likewise, when you understand the book of Daniel, you can look at the book of Revelation and go, hmm, that sounds vaguely familiar. Now, we know that a vast majority of what is contained in the remainder of this book um, is going to point to a time that we would call the age of grace, the kingdom age, and beyond. And we've now come to that place to where Daniel is now going to take a little bit of a journey back. You could call what we're about to read actually a flashback. He is going to flash back about 25 years. And in fact, chapter 7 begins to highlight a little bit of what we learned from this dream of dreams. It was in chapter 2. And if you remember there, kings and kingdoms were assigned to this image that was on the plains of Dura. And now we have some deepening of that story because ultimately the book of Daniel gives us a preview of the history really of the world and very specifically the nation Israel going forward not only from Daniel's time but also into the future that is still future to you and I tonight. And so we're going to begin to dig in to this deeply prophetic portion uh, of the book of Daniel. It will require that we slow down a little bit, take little smaller bites of it, because there's so much in it that by the time you begin to peel the onion layers back and look at what the rest of the Bible says about what's being said here and what's being inferred by what's being said here, uh, it re requires a diligent study of a number of other books, and chief among them uh, will be the book of Revelation. So we're going to be pulling in the book of Revelation as we study this part of the book of Daniel. And so if you would join me, we'll pray. Uh, we're going to go back in time to a 56-year-old Daniel now, and this time when the dream of dreams came to him and some additional information that he received while he was interpreting that dream uh, that King Belshazzar's court would have brought forth. And so, Father, we thank you uh, for the prophetic word. We pray, Lord, that as we read these words that you authored through this amazing man, the prophet Daniel, that, God, we would hear them and understand them. We would know, Lord, that you have a purpose and a plan for all things. 
And some of the details of these passages we're about to read are still in our future. Lord, they're around the corner prophetically. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Encourage us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna see in verse one, and I'm just gonna give you a little foregleam here. Uh, remember, King Belshazzar, as far as we're concerned, is dead, amen? He's already gone. So if Daniel is referencing the first year of King Belshazzar, this could not be strictly in a chronological order because we've already seen him pass from the scene and he is gone. So this is, in fact, an easy way for us to understand that this is being written about a dream and about a vision that Daniel had when King Belshazzar was still alive. Interestingly enough, this chapter also transitions, as I said, these particular first seven chapters were written in Aramaic, actually part of chapter seven, a little bit of chapter eight can be found in Aramaic, but it also now is going to switch over to Hebrew. And interestingly enough, the reason that would happen is because as we look forward, the language of the Jewish people is going to be Hebrew. It's not going to be the language of captivity, Aramaic. And so the copies that we have of the book of Daniel, the oldest ones, uh, do show that transition now into Hebrew because it would be the people that would come back after the captivity that would be very interested in what's going to happen from here going forward. And so this chapter kind of ends uh, this, personal, this personal picture that we have of Daniel and it picks up the prophetic uh, picture that Daniel is now going to present to us and it is going to be tied into a whole bunch of things uh, in the book of Revelation. And so uh, in the first year, it says there in verse one here in Daniel chapter seven, uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And remember, he actually died um, at the end of chapter five. Daniel had a dream and visions in his head while he laid on his bed. <clears throat> and then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And so he's giving us a little window into what's going on in his mind and these are the main facts, and we're only going to take down through verse uh, 8 tonight because it's a whole bunch of stuff that I think by the time we dig into it and relate it to what we know in the book of Revelation, it will be more than sufficient and take a significant amount of time to just dig through this part. And so we now have what Daniel saw some 25 years earlier. He wrote these things down, and so now he's digging into the details of an additional piece of information that he had previously. And so we're about to get a glimpse back. Remember that we had this giant figure that was on the plain of Dura. It had a head of gold and a chest of silver and thighs of bronze and feet of iron. So remember, lock that in because we're going to see that there is a very similar uh, vision that's attached to this particular passage of scripture because the same kings, the same kingdoms, are all going to come into view and an extrapolation on the fourth. And that is the deeply important part of chapter seven because it begins to give us a foregleam, a look forward into that final world empire that has yet to actually come into existence that we would call according to what we know in the book of Revelation, that final world empire or the revived Roman empire or Romanism come back in some form or fashion. And so we're going to see that here as we continue onward. Verse two, 
And Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And again, it is necessary. Remember, we, we determined that the best way for us to interpret Scripture is to allow Scripture, when it speaks on Scripture, to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we're going to em- employ that particular uh, method of hermeneutics, of biblical interpretation tonight. And we're going to find out who it is that these, uh, this great sea is and, and what are these great winds. And four great beasts came up from the sea. So there is a great sea being stirred up by the winds of heaven, each different from the other. If you want to read ahead, which I encourage you not to do at this very moment, you're going to find out that we get some help actually interpreting this particular part of the chapter, picking up in verse 17 on down to verse 28, the end of the chapter, in chapter 7. So we have help. People often read the prophetic books and they look at a couple of sentences and they go, I'm lost. God wouldn't give us his word and then not enable us to understand it. That would be very, very foolish on God's part because it would do us no good. And in fact, if it were totally confusing and unable to be known, um, one could say it actually would be more than confusing. It might even be destructive. And so... Here he comes, the beasts come up out of the sea, each different from the other, and the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. We've heard that one before, amen? And I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, Dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring. It was breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, for it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so Daniel writes down this vision. You're all going, oh my. This this is nuts. This is crazy. This is wild. But I think God's given us sufficient understanding that we can not only interpret this correctly, but also look at why God would write this to us in the first place, why we would have this amazing vision. And it says here, literally when it says, I was looking, it actually says, I was on guard. In other words, Daniel's heart was somehow by the Holy Spirit prepared to see this vision. He was actually waiting for it in that sense. The the picture is someone who's in a guard tower. It actually occurs some 10 times in this chapter that he saw or he was watching. 
And, and it's deeply fixed on these visions. This is not something to where, you know, he stayed up too late, drank too much coffee before he went to bed, and he was just rolling around in his bed. These things were absolutely sent to him by the Lord, and each one of them had meaning. And that's the reason that he wrote them down and now goes back after these 25 years have passed. And he says, okay, we need to really now concern ourselves with what I saw back then. What was God trying to say? And so the first thing we see is we, we start looking at the, these, this wind and what is it? You see, from a Jewish perspective, remember Daniel is Jewish. He writes from a Jewish perspective. He's writing in a way that this book would then be used first by the Jewish people and then by the church. Uh, the Jews held that the, the winds that came from the four ordinal directions, north, south, east, and west, those were favorable. Those were good. And so from a Jewish perspective, whenever you looked at the winds coming from north, south, east, and west, they were normally named as such because that was a wind that was favorable to the Jewish people's condition. But when they came from anywhere else, they were considered unfavorable. And so these winds, because they're not given in an ordinal direction, are winds that are not favorable to the history of the Jewish people. And so they're contrary winds. They're winds that are going to blow and if you would turn, if you want to, you can just write these things down. Revelation chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 49 were kind of given a picture. And in Jeremiah 49 verse 36, it says this, And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. And, and, and so as we look at what God's trying to communicate to us, um, Jeremiah would have this vision that he was going to bring these four winds against Elam um, from the four quarters of the heaven and would scatter them. And so it appears that as God speaks of these winds, he's speaking of something that he would himself use in a way to scatter. He himself would use to stir up. He himself would allow things to happen that are not necessarily from a human standpoint good, but they are necessary and God's going to allow them. And one of the things that you read when you read the book of Revelation is you read all of this end times destruction from chapter 6 to 19. Uh, we have this period that is still future to us called the tribulation. That's uh, a pretty negative environment, amen? If you know anything about the, the tribulation of days, the time of Jacob's trouble, if there's anything you can say, it is absolutely negative from a human condition standpoint, but it's also absolutely necessary it's the tool that God's going to use. So just because we see something negative, we cannot immediately just assign it to the devil did it or the, the enemy is stirring it up or demons caused it to happen. God, in fact, does use negative circumstance to push the Jewish people specifically to places that they would not otherwise go. And he actually did scatter them himself when he scattered them out of the, the land that we call Judea. And so uh, in three other passages, we have four winds symbolizing the scattering, the gathering of the elect from the ends of the earth. So in Zechariah, um, we have that. And so this begins to present kind of a picture uh, of these winds and these beasts, and it, and it seems somewhat um, wild and might even be called by some conjecture where you're just thinking, you know, those, that might be what it is. But as you read through the rest of the prophetic passages of Scripture that are tied to this, for instance, Ezekiel chapter 37, 
when you read there in Ezekiel 37, it says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the son of man. Say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I give wind and I give breath to these that are slain and I cause them to rise. So God can use things for positive and God can use things for negative. In that sense, he's going to breathe breath back into the dry bones of Israel. He's going to cause them to be raised up and live again. And so this particular set of winds appears to me some working on on this sea that is in front of us. And so we have to kind of discern, okay, well, what's he talking about when he says this great sea? And so when you look at this particular passage in Numbers chapter 34 and verse 6, uh, we find an instance where the Mediterranean Sea is called the Great Sea. And so many Bible expositors just simply assumed that that would be the case. The problem is the rest of the context of the passage does not indicate that that would be what this passage would be all about because there is a stirring of the surface of this sea by winds which are contrary which God is going to use to scatter and so the Mediterranean Sea was used to bless the children of Israel and so it very definitely looks like he's speaking of a different kind of sea and also where Daniel's writing is not located anywhere near the Mediterranean amen if anything, you, you could say it's located near the Persian Gulf of, of our modern day world, uh, closer to the Indian Ocean than it would be to the Mediterranean Sea. And so what was Daniel seeing? What was it that was going through his heart and his mind? Remember, he's riding in Babylon. The Babylonians had a, a, a whole mythology um, that surrounded what we would call and what we still call to this day how many of you have gone to a large sporting event and you've had people exit a stadium and you said there's a huge sea of people out there that is a common thing that we still use in in english vernacular today we would look at that and go that's a sea of people if you've gone to disneyland anytime near christmas that's a sea of people amen if you go to any place where there's a ton of people and they're wandering around, we, we use this exact same phrase. Well, the Babylonian epic uh, that's, that I believe is being referenced here by Daniel, which he certainly would have known of because he's in Babylon, uh, he, he would have looked at this and he would have gone, you know, this sounds a whole lot like the Sumerians and the Babylonians with Namu and, and Taimat, which are these these two groups that kind of got together and ultimately they became uh, it became a battle to um, create all of mankind and the sea that is mankind the sea of humanity or the sea of people and so it seems that God is saying that there's going to be a stir a stirring on the surface of the sea of mankind that is going to blow people in a whole bunch of different directions and is going to cause them to divide up into these kingdoms that are further mentioned as we move forward in the rest of this passage. And so as you look at this, in Isaiah chapter 17, we get a little insight. And it says, Oh, the raging, there in verses 12 and 13, of many nations, for they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, for they roar like the roaring of great waters. And although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee away. They're driven before the wind like chaff on hills, like a tumbleweed in a gale. 
And so it seems to collect these two thoughts of a sea of humanity and God dispersing humanity via the winds of the way the world works, in other words, the things that go on in our lives, we, we see that. Furthermore, as we read the book of Revelation, we, we see this in chapter 17 uh, of the book of Revelation when we find uh, that this, this beast is going to rise up and he's going to come out of the shore of the sea. He's going to come out of the people. And so in that case, it says there in Revelation 17, verse 15 and 16, and the dragon stood in the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on its horns, and on each a blasphemous name. And then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits. So you can see it's tying it directly to the waters, the sea of humanity. Where the prostitute sits are the peoples. We're actually told what the sea is. Are the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the language, and the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. And so we're going to dig into this whole thing as we travel through uh, the remainder of this passage tonight. And so it appears that we're getting a little foregleam, a little glimpse ahead, a little picture uh, of what will ultimately be completely described to us in the book of Revelation. So Daniel is writing this tremendously apocalyptic view of the very last days, how the nations of the earth will rise up against the plans of God, will rise up against the Jewish people, and ultimately God will scatter them. They will have a time of coming back together and a time of dispersing exactly like the shores of the sea. These things are going to continue until the last kingdom comes. And so now Daniel gives us a picture of all of humanity from the time that he lives in until the very last day. And he does it by giving us four beasts. And so what are these four beasts? In succession, we've already seen that each of these beasts represents a king and it represents a kingdom. And those empires were already described to us back in chapter 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so this is the same exact picture that we had on the statue that stood on the plains of Dura, that Daniel and his three companions stood when everybody else was bowing. And so they represent uh, these successive Uh, kingdoms that are going to come on the earth and furthermore each of the four winds of heaven produces an empire by churning up the sea of humanity so he's giving us a picture it's like when the sea of humanity gets churned up we end up with a new kingdom we end up with a new king we end up with a new uh, ruling people group if you will and it begins with the one that daniel is actually in at that point in time it starts with babylon And so it begins with the head of gold, and it begins with this first beast, the winged lion. And if you study anything about Babylonian history, the most common thing that you will see in Babylonian inscriptions is, guess what? A winged lion. And so it was the symbol, it was the official symbol of the the Babylonian people to begin with. You can go to almost any museum that houses ancient antiquities, 
And if they have an exhibit of the ancient antiquities of the nations of the earth or the kingdoms of the earth, if it goes back to Egyptian and moves forward, you're going to find the Assyrians, you're going to find the Babylonians, you're going to find the Greeks, you're going to find the Romans. And there's one other kingdom that's mentioned here. And so these four beasts will come in succession and it says the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings and I watched until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Interesting. Do you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was made to stand up like a man after being a beast and he was given a soft heart like a human being. He's speaking I want you to understand this because you've already seen part of this unfold. You already know what I'm getting at here. You've watched it happen. Furthermore, what just happened to Cyrus? Cyrus had exactly the same experience. Took a little longer, but Cyrus also came to that place where he said, you know what? We're going to worship Daniel's God. So he's made to stand up like a man. He had been a beast. He had been cruel. He had been one of those kingdoms that had come in and conquered and overtaken others. But finally, there was a softened heart. And so this first beast, Daniel got to see himself. He's like, oh, this was Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar perished. Cyrus came after him, and he was the beginning of guess which empire? The Medes and the Persians. And so these empires are now set to rise and fall in succession. The four winds churn up the great sea in the first is the Babylonian. And Jeremiah saw the same exact thing, by the way. A lion has come out of its lair. Destroyer of nations is set out. It's left its place waste. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. And so each time these beasts rise up and each time they take a new place and the world is seen, Daniel basically got just a little tiny window of each one of them so that we can look back having seen history move on through the ages to the time that we, ha- we are today. We can say, you know what? Babylonians, that was a real deal. Medo-Persia, that was a real people group that had a real king and a real kingdom. And we can then move through each one of these And so these four beasts, the sovereign God in heaven is the one who actually raises them up. He's the one that actually allows them to have power. And when he's done with them, they're done. Amen? So each kingdom, though it came on the scene, was very powerful for a time. God kept his word. None of of us are under the threat of Greece today. Amen? Amen? None of you are going to wake up tomorrow and find the troops of Alexander the Great at your doorstep. It's not going to happen. You're not going to find one of the Roman emperors in his chariot, you know, off the coast of California in, you know, in some type of a Roman slave galley attacking. They're gone. They've faded from history. And so who were these four beasts exactly? The first one, of course, was Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 1 through 4 says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, for I set forth an allegory to tell the house of Israel a parable and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle 
with powerful wings and long feathers full of plumage, varied in colors, has come to Lebanon, taking hold of the top of the cedar and broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to the land of merchants where he planted it in a city of traders. In this parable, King Nebuchadnezzar is the winged eagle. The top of the tree is the Jewish kings. They were considered the cedars of Lebanon were what were used to build the temple. The land of merchants, <coughs> excuse me, a city of traders was Babylon itself. It was known as a trading city. And so we're, we're continued to have, we continue to have these things reinforced in our thinking so that when you would look at Mesopotamian art and go, hmm, that's a winged lion and that's an eagle. And this picture over here of the Jewish king, Josiah, bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar, which by the way exists, you can go, oh, the Bible was telling us in advance what was going to happen. The Bible was giving us history, in essence, that we can go back and actually check according to the world that we live in. And so the plucking of the eagle's wings from the lion, it's standing to its feet, having a human heart, pictures the king turning, going from his former beastly treatment of his subjects to the humane treatment at the end of his reign. And of course, as you look at this, all that was attributable to Daniel's witness in Babylon. And so the first beast was Babylon itself. The second beast, Medo-Persia, verse five, and therefore there was a second beast. And it looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And what we already know, because Daniel lived through the conquest, is the following empire was the empire of the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus and Shambesis and Xerxes. Um, There was a point in time when the Medo-Persia army would have been larger than the army of the United States of America today. It may have reached a point to where it was 2.5 million men. If you know a little bit about your history, uh, the Greeks ultimately clashed with the Persians. Uh, if you've read the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, you'll, you'll find this incredible battle where the Persians and the Greeks finally clashed together, uh, a violent empire. And so this, this military empire devoured flesh all over what we would call the Middle East. And at one point in time, the whole region uh, was, was ruled by this very powerful uh, two-nation confederacy, Media and Persia. And the lopsidedness of this, of this symbol um, compares the Medes and the Persians. In other words, they were not equal in their power. Um, the three great powers that, that were overcome by the beast, Lydia in Asia Minor uh, under King Croesus, and in Babylon under Nabonidus and Belshazzar, and under Egypt, uh, Pasmic, all of these ribs, in essence, were in the mouth of the bear. They were overtaken. And, and so as they were being absorbed, what normally happened during those times, unlike today, Uh, If you were conquered, you you weren't destroyed. You were assimilated into that culture. You you were taken out of existence by taking away your culture and it being replaced with the culture of the conqueror. And so that happens here as this this lumbering bear uh, called Persia 
uh, travels all over um, this particular region and absorbs basically all of the cultures. The third beast would have been Greece. Uh, and Alexander, Alexander the Great, this incredible warrior, rises to power. He dies by the time he's 32 years old. And by the time he, he ends his rule and reign and, and he uh, passes into the next life, um, he has conquered most of the known world. Um, his troops have traveled all the way into the southern reaches of what we would call Europe. And the way he did that was speed. And so what is this beast? I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Anyone want to take a guess on how many generals uh, Alexander gave his kingdom to? Uh, there were exactly four. His kingdom was divided. It had four heads. And so here's this extremely swift. The reason the Greeks were so powerful is they moved with lightning speed. And so this beast, very fast, swift, like a leopard, wings of a bird. However, if you put wings on a leopard's back, it's going to be different than the wings on, of a, of, on an eagle, on a lion. So Alexander's conquest, if you look at it, was almost twice as fast as Nebuchadnezzar's. And so you have a single set of wings on the lion, you have a double set of wings on the leopard. And that's almost exactly to the year, the, the year difference between the conquest of the Babylonians and the conquest of the Greeks, the conquest of the, media, uh, the Medo-Persian army. Um, leopards are also known for their agility as well as their speed. They can do incredible things. Uh, when I was down in Belize, um, we, we actually happened upon a leopard that had, had killed a, a sheep. And, and here's this leopard without any thought whatsoever. has got a sheep in its mouth and it's climbing a tree with the sheep in its mouth. Unbelievably powerful. And so Greece, unbelievably powerful, unbelievably swift, but also a very short-lived empire uh, by world standards. And so these beasts all rise out of what? Out of the sea of humanity. It's humanity that keeps these beasts going and growing. It's humanity that provides the, the beasts their power. It is actually humanity that ultimately is the backbone of these particular kings and kingdoms. Without the human element, they would not be powerful at all. So you can see the sea, the, the, the sea of people, if you will, being driven by the winds uh, that were contrary to God's plans, stir up these nations and, and their rulers. So out of sheer terror, uh, many cities like Jerusalem surrendered to Alexander the Great without even being attacked. They, they just said, look, we're, we're surrendering before you get here because what's going to happen is obvious. And so we're just giving in right now. If you read uh, Josephus's masterwork, Antiquities of the Jews, it tells of the fear uh, that fell upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem just thinking about being attacked by Alexander the Great. And, and so this picture is very true so far as we know history. And so what Daniel does, and you'll notice this, he passes over these first three beasts rather quickly. He basically says, meh, okay, this is what's going to happen. You can go back and look at it culturally. You can go, yep, that is exactly uh, what happened. 
And then he comes to this fourth beast. And the fourth beast he spends a significant amount of time on. And there's a reason for that. Verse 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all of the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horn, there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them. And before the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there was in this horn, there were eyes like that of a man and a mouth that spoke pompous words. And so here's where this starts to come into our day and time. Starts to give us a picture of things that are yet future, even to us. The Apostle John describes, in essence, this this hybrid of beasts as well. And in Revelation chapter 13, it's called the dragon. His beast, his power and his throne, his authority um, are, are in essence like none that the world had ever seen. And I'm going to say some things tonight. They are, my opinion, based on what I see in the world right now, I believe they're accurate. But I'm also leaving open the possibility to there being uh, something that could come along that may change this ultimately. But I think um, that there is a real reason that that we can actually know um, what is being said by Daniel the prophet. And in fact, I believe we might be on the very very verge of finally seeing this last world empire uh, come onto the scene. Because it says here, and notice that it begins with this iron beast. And so it's referring in some way, shape, or form to the empire of iron, which was Rome. And so we have a picture that Rome is somehow involved in this. We also have John giving us these first three beasts, and he he reminds us of what's going on Uh, prophetically looking backwards and ultimately just as the prophet isaiah says and john says in revelation the dragon stands on the shore of the sea and and he sees these ten horns and seven heads and so the ten horns are the same as the ten toes that we saw in daniel 2 and they're the same as the ten horns as we see in revelation 13 so this number 10 the horns the toes all the same thing john sees it Daniel sees it twice. He's looking at some type of confederacy that comes out of the old Roman Empire that sprouts up, that is actually going to have mouthpieces from multiple different places, and it is going to be able to move from multiple different places, hence the toes and the horns. John calls it a beast power, dominion, fierceness, a means of attack. And if you know anything about world history, of course, the Roman Empire followed the Greek Empire. The Roman Empire was, guess what, the last of the world empires in that sense. When you talk about ruling the world, one could say that the United States of America protects the world today, but we do not even come close to ruling the world. Matter of fact, we work pretty hard at not ruling the world. We actually do provide military support and aid and all kinds of things, but we let nations govern themselves. 
So in that sense, we're not the world's largest empire. The world's largest ruling empire that ever existed was Rome itself. And so when these words were written, Rome was still future. It was coming, hadn't come yet. So they didn't know anything about Hadrian's Wall in the north of Scotland. They didn't know that the Romans had reached all the way into what we would call the very northern latitudes, not very far below the Arctic Circle, by the way. Uh, They would conquer all of Europe. And in fact, you can go throughout all of Europe and find Roman, Roman ruins everywhere. There are Roman ruins all over Europe. You can find Roman ruins all over Asia. When you travel to Israel and you're standing on the top of Masada, this fortified city, that, this fortress that Herod built, and you look down, there are 10 Roman encampments that are still visible all around the base of Masada where the Roman 10th Legion laid siege to Masada, hoping to wait out the 2,000 inhabitants of this city under Judas Maccabees. Rome was powerful. And when Rome spoke, the world listened. But they didn't last either. And you're not going to have to worry about when you go to Rome, you aren't going to be accosted by any Roman guards. You might have to pay a fee to get inside of the Vatican. You'll see some guys in some funny colored suits. Um, but there is no Roman Empire. But there is a very powerful entity that still exists in Rome. It's the world's smallest city-state. You know it as the Holy See. And in fact, if you took the amount of wealth that the Roman Catholic Church possesses, uh, it would be the most wealthy country on the face of the earth, given the number of people that derive their income from that, which is a very small amount. And so there is a place where the Romans still rule. It just happens to be inside of a church. And so I think there is a reason for us to see that the Romans still exist in our world, but they exist in a different way. And interestingly enough, as John writes the book of Revelation, what does he say about the final world empire? That it's going to be a commercial empire? That it is going to be a political empire and it is going to be a religious empire so the final ruler this single horn that's mentioned in this passage is somehow going to be tied into romanism and so you have the 10 horns of this fourth beast and as i said there are the 10 toes there are the 10 horns of revelation 13 And so the horns, symbols of power, dominion, glory, fierceness, voice. And so as we saw previously in Daniel's interpretation of these things himself, every time that there is a king, there's a kingdom. Every time there's a government, there's also a ruler of it, in other words. And as you look at this final world kingdom, here's the crazy thing. There hasn't been one that has this kind of power yet there there hasn't how many Caesars were there at one time in Rome anybody know exactly one this thing's going to have a central ruler a pompous horn and it's going to have 
ten subservient horns. In other words, there's going to be uh, a group of nations that are going to have a voice, and they're also going to have a ruler that's going to speak for all of them. Strangely enough, the Bible continues to give that picture, this beast that comes out of the sea that we see uh, in Revelation 13. Isaiah 27 gives us the same picture. And, and so as we look towards the future in Daniel's vision, this vision of his horns, I think we're still looking at a time that's yet future. I don't believe it's come yet. That's where it gets interesting in our day and time. That happens to be a two euro coin. And when you, they don't produce these anymore because they kind of figured out ah, this is not a really great way for us to be known. Uh, but the Treaty of Rome, when it was founded on March 25th of 1957, began with a handful of nations. Today there are 28. So as the EU began to form, the most common thing about the EU is, guess what? They're all predominantly Catholic nations. They, they all have a little bit of Romanism in them, and they have a connection back to Rome that way. The interesting other thing is, is this group of nations that we find in Ezekiel 37 to 38 has a whole nother set of nations rise up against it. It's headed primarily by Russia, and those nations are predominantly the Islamic world of our day and time. And so you have in Ezekiel 37, 38, a consortium of nations that are predominantly Islamic, aided by Russia. And in John's revelation of Jesus Christ, we have a woman who rides a beast in Revelation chapter 19. Odd choice for the two euro coin, a woman riding a beast. And so as the EU has been formed, it's interesting that it is a consortium of nations. It's grown so large that it has now not, it really isn't governed the way it was intended. And there is talk even today of reducing it to 10 voices. All of the nations would, in essence, submit to a council, if you will, of 10. Hasn't happened yet. But in the meantime, while the European Union has risen to prominence and power, the biggest enlargement was in 2004. Ten new countries came in. Um, There are a whole bunch of nations that are still waiting their turn to get in. Some of them are in what are called the Schengen Group, which has free access to each other's borders. You don't even need to do anything other than go back and forth. There's no border checks or any of those kind of things. But as you look at this final world empire, it's going to have to have a very large group of nations, and it's going to need to control the world in three different ways. It is going to have to control the world economically, religiously, and governmentally. Anybody know which one of the two currencies currently is the better of the two if you take a U.S. dollar, which used to be the world's reserve currency, or a euro? It's the euro. I know that because we were just in Europe not that long ago, and when you exchange dollars for euros, you don't get many euros for dollars. You get, you get fewer of the euros than you do for dollars. And so Europe is on the rise. And it's not to put a negative stigma on everything that happens with the European Union, but it is interesting to me that when you look at the rise uh, of, of Europe and you see what's going on, you realize that there has to be <coughs> a final world empire 
that has a remnant of Romanism that controls the world's economy, the world's religion, and the world's government, there's only one group that exists today that would qualify for those three particular criteria. The only thing missing is the one thing that Daniel mentions in this passage, and that's a single little pompous horn that's going to speak for everybody. That, that final voice, uh, if you will. The EU is now the largest economy in the world. It's the most powerful political entity on earth, as, as, as disconnected as some of the parts are. Uh, as the euro is kind of has this third-way semi-socialist ideology that they have, uh, it, it has strength in the fact that they, they're gathering together. It's why we've had such a problem with the exit of Great Britain from the European Union, this thing that we call Brexit. Um, it's because the euro is powerful. When you travel around Europe, if you're not in the euro trade zone, um, you're on the outside. And if you're not directly associated with the United States or China, you have a problem. Europe is on the rise. I believe Daniel saw that. I think that is the picture that he had. And so the missing piece is the rise of the Holy Roman Empire or the revived Roman Empire or an empire that is European in its political sense because it's going to have to have multiple rulers. How many rulers do we have at one point in time? We just have one. We have one president, amen? And that president has power. He's governed by a house, but we don't consider ourselves to be governed um, by a single person. We do, however, have one person that has a larger say than anybody else, even though he's currently restrained because we have a Congress and we have a Senate and we have a judiciary. Those three powers that were designed to keep somebody from running away with power here in the United States but we don't even come close to controlling the world. And so I believe there's going to be a, a merger, if you will, ultimately of state and state religion. And the reason I don't believe that's Islam is because Islam is the religion of all of those nations that come against Israel in the last days. When you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it is entirely Muslim, with the exception of Russia. And even southern Russia is highly Islamic. All of the stands, so what used to be part of the former Soviet Socialist Republic, is actually largely Islamic. And so it isn't going to be the Islamic nations, because the Islamic nations are going to rise with Russia, come against Israel, and God is going to wipe them out. So there has to be another, another empire that's going to come up. It's not going to be Islam. As large as Islam is today, which, by the way, by percentage of religion, it is the largest of the world's religions other than Christianity in all of its forms. I believe it's going to be that final, very, very ecumenical one world religion. It's going to just kind of accept everything. It's interesting when you start to listen to some of the things that are being bantered back and forth. It's like, well, you know, we kind of need to get rid of this, this idea 
that, that there's one way and one truth and one life and there's only one way for you to come to God. We kind of need to just accept everybody. Everybody's got the right way. That's ecumenism. There's only one Christian group on the planet that's even talking about that. That happens to be the Roman Catholic Church. The current Pope is extremely open to very advanced ecumenism, to where it's just like, well, we kind of all need to learn to get along. Now, while that's a wonderful thing, we don't want people fighting each other and killing each other. When you're talking about a final ruling empire that's going to ultimately see the Antichrist rise out of it, this final little horn, um, it means we're getting close to the end is what it actually means. It means the world's time clock, the time clock of prophecy is winding down. And so as God will ultimately uh, defeat Russia and defeat the Muslim nations that are rising up against Israel, as they come against the Jewish people, ultimately put down, I think the only group that's left is going to be Europe. And here's why I believe that. Because I believe in a, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, um, we who are alive and remain are going to be snatched up to meet him in the air. And I think the, the church as we know it, the Bible-believing, the Christ-honoring, the God-loving, the God-fearing, the God-promoting, the, the people who actually love the Lord Jesus aren't going to be on the earth. And so I don't believe that the United States of America is going to have a whole bunch to say ultimately in those last days things. And the way we're going, we may surrender our Christian heritage before that time comes. And so there may not be as much of the church to snatch away, but I can tell you this, it isn't going to be the United States that's going to be in that group. Because like it or not, we are still a Christian nation. You, you, can, you can make up all the excuses you want. We're still a Christian nation. We got all kinds of problems and people will debate that all day. But when you talk to people, a very large percentage of people will say they are some form of a Christian. And so... I think Daniel got a picture of the future. He was being given the signs of the times. The stage is being set for the rise of this last world empire. The beast, the antichrist, uh, one day is going to rise up. You're going to see Europe rise to prominency. Um, You're going to see things like the book of Revelation describing that you're going to need to take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell. Um, that to me, people have always said, well, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a chip in your forehead. or Maybe, that's possible. Or on your right hand, or it could just simply be electronic. There's all kinds of ways to make that happen. But in order for it to be really implemented, you've got to have a single monetary system. There's got to be somebody that controls it all. In order for people to submit to that, they've got to give up their rights as believers. In order to do that today, You've got to do something about the 1.67, 1.7 billion Muslims that, that exist in the world because they're not even going to buy that. They're going to go, no, we're not doing that either. We have computer systems in Brussels that have the capacity to manage all of the world's finances simultaneously. We're actually about on the verge of seeing the end of the LIBOR, the London Interbank 
uh, overnight exchange rate. That's almost done. It used to be that all transactions globally were done through London. It's now going to be shifted and be done through Brussels. You have the North African states, the Middle East, uh, joining together, some of them even deciding even now to become part of the EU, um, at least applying for, for those things. And so a European superstate, a ruler that's going to rise up in the last days, these are exciting things to me, not because I'm excited to see the world kind of go into that last day's chaos, but it just tells me it's time to get busy about our father's business. The time is at hand. The day is near. We're, we're waiting on the Lord, but we want to be busy while we're waiting. Amen? There are some things that I know that happened. When Alexander the Great died on June 13th of 323 B.C. following his death, his empire was divided into exactly four equal parts. You had Lysimachus who got Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander ruled Macedonia. Uh, Seleucus ruled Syria. And ultimately, uh, Ptolemy would rule Egypt. And so if the Bible's right about things like that, I'm absolutely positive it's right about the rest of it. I believe there is going to be a massive consortium of nations that's going to rise up in the very last days and they are going to be ruled by the one little horn. The horn that John, as he writes Revelation, reminds us that's actually the Antichrist, that final world ruler. That beast is going to rise up. It's going to wage war against God. After those four generals died Rome rose to power Rome is no more but there is a remnant of Rome there's still a little touch of Rome scattered all over the globe what's next well for the believer a trumpet dead in Christ are raised we who are alive and remain medium in the air. For those who don't know him, though, uh, time's going to unfold on this earth that the first three and a half years of which will be peace, followed by the worst violence that mankind has ever seen, ultimately culminating in at least two-thirds of the world's population being wiped out because this little horn is going to be a man of peace. He's going to bring an end to that war that is started by the Russians joined together with the Arab world that comes against Israel, he is going to be responsible for the peace treaty that puts that to, to bed. But he's only going to stay a good king for three and a half years. And then his true colors are going to come out. So we have some very interesting things to study as we move forward in this book. It should cause you to keep your eyes on the world, but it should most importantly cause you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Amen. Father, we thank you that you gave us a little glimpse of things that are still coming or things that lie ahead. Lord, those days that you called the last days. 
those days that ultimately you will call the day of the Lord when you finally return to rule and reign on this earth when that promise that was made to Mary that her son would one day sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom we believe Lord that you will establish that throne in Jerusalem that you'll sit on the mount of Zion and rule and reign and we will reign with you Lord that's what your word says but we're not quite there yet and so we have work to do we pray that you'd make us busy about our father's business we pray that our hearts would be inclined to heaven that Lord we would never yield one inch of the truth God we believe that your word is true and we should live like we believe it's true and so Lord we thank you for this incredible passage of scripture strengthen us with it Cause us to see our world through the lens of scripture. Bless us, Lord, this week as we look forward to that day when you call us home. May we be found busy doing all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen.